And now, for the show reflecting on classic radio, Hollywood 360, with your host, Carl Amari. I can see you right now in the kitchen, bending over a hot stove, but I can't see the stove. Who knows what evil lurks in the hearts of men? The shadow knows. <laughs> Would you mind telling me whose brain I did put in? And you won't be angry? I will not be angry. Abby someone. Abby someone. Abby who? Abby normal. What do you do, Carl? Carl is a inventor slash entrepreneur. Yeah, I'm still looking for that home run, you know? I mean, when I saw the iPod first time, I was like, man, I gotta kick myself. That was so hard on him. What's your name? Carl's my name. Atomic batteries to power. Turbines to speed. Roger, ready to move out. I'm Carl Amari, and this is Hollywood 360, the radio show that presents all things entertainment, including trivia contests and games, movie reviews, celebrity interviews, showbiz news, and classic radio shows. My co-host is the vivacious Lisa Wolf. In this hour, we're going to tune in to a quarter-hour episode of Saga. You've never heard of this show, because I've never heard of this show. We're also going to tune into the Roy Rogers program. And after we hear Saga, we will then tune into the Roy Rogers show. Now, this is uh, here's what I know about this series. It is uh, It aired in 1955 over ABC. And these were true adventures and uh, that were actually printed in a magazine called Saga and then dramatized on radio. This particular episode aired August 9th, 1955. It's number 52 in the series. It's called They Bet Their Lives. It's a detective drama. Let's tune this in. Here's Saga. Be it in battle or on the western plains or at sea There you will find a saga. ABC Radio presents transcribed tales of true adventure, stories of high courage. Tonight, a saga of London. A detective always remembers the cases he's worked on. A narrow escape from danger, an unusually difficult chase, even a pretty girl. I remember the Vera Chesney murder case for every reason in the book, and then some. The victim was lovely, or had been, the circumstances were dramatic. Vera Chesney was murdered in her own bathtub, and the volume of clues and suspects kept three men busy for months, just checking and sorting. It was hard work. The men who had known the dead girl were an unsavory lot, with the exception of her husband, from whom she'd been separated for nearly a year, they were unworthy of her. Well, I'd gotten in the habit of reviewing the case with my secretary, and I tried to explain that side of it to her. You're not even listening to me, Mary. You said you want this report out. 
Anyway, I'm sure I don't understand your attitude about Vera Chesney. She wasn't at all a decent sort. I didn't say she was. Well, he probably did it. Who? Her husband. What, killed his wife? <laughs> Why should he? They were the best of friends. We found a cozy little note from him to her dated only a week before her death. Best friend I ever had. That's what the note said to her. I still bet he killed her. Mm, you just think he should have killed her. You're a mighty proper miss, you are. Just like a woman. You stick up your pretty little nose at a bit of fun, and yet if it's murder, you think she had it coming to her. <clears throat> if you want that report, Mr. Chadburn, I'll have to be getting on with my work. <laughs> That's the way it stood. Months went by and we weren't getting any further. Reluctantly, I'd begun to feel that Mary was right. Maybe Chesney had killed his wife in a fit of jealous passion. Also, there began to be rumors of another woman. And while the Chesneys were separated, they weren't divorced. Yes, maybe Vera had threatened to make trouble for him. But I'd just about gotten around to accepting Chesney as the villain when my secretary Mary did a little detective work on her own. She'd been just about to leave the office when this seedy individual showed up looking for me. And the way she told it to me later, she decided to have a go at detecting herself. Uh, don't go, Mr. Pickersgill. Uh, that is what you said your name was. Ah, uh, that's it. <laughs> well, now, why don't you just sit down and wait? Mr. Chadburn should be back in a little while, and... Well, if it's anything about the Chesney case, he'll be sure to want to see you. Well, I'll wait five minutes. Thank you. Of course, we all think it's dreadful about poor Mrs. Chesney. Um, I suppose you knew her husband? Well? There's no doubt that he did her in, don't you think? Mm -hmm. I was a cellmate at Chesney's. He wanted Vera out of the way so he could marry that little girl he was palling around with. Sonia's her name. And did he admit that to you? Oh, admit it and more. He offered me two thousand pounds to do it in for him. And did you? Are you crazy now? Would I be telling you this if I had? Then he did it. I just finished telling you he did. He wanted to marry this here Sonia and Vera wouldn't give him up. Uh, you have your boss check into this and he'll see I'm right. You know, you wouldn't be above taking a little present for my trouble either. Here's my address and you can get a message to me there. Mary was as proud as punch when she told me her story. As a matter of fact, I was pretty proud of her too. Well, with Mary's good work, we had a motive now. All we needed was proof of opportunity and Chesney himself. Oh, get it, will you please, Mary? Chickering, 654. It's for you, Mr. Chadburn. Oh, thank you. Yes. Oh, go ahead, Hopkins. Hmm, the 10th. Are you sure? Yes, how about the 11th? Hmm, same thing, eh? No possibility of error. Okay, okay, don't fly off the handle. I just want to be sure. Yes, thanks. And just what are you <laughs> grinning about? <laughs> You'd better look for a new candidate, Mary. Oh. We have absolute proof that Chesney was in Paris the night of the murder and the day after, too, just in case the medical examiner's got his times mixed. Are you sure? That was Kevin at immigration. Chesney used his passport to go to the continent on Tuesday the 9th. He registered at a Paris hotel the same day, using his passport again. And as far as we know, he's still there. I can't believe it. Well, it's true. I still say Chesney did it. <laughs> 
two other men volunteered information similar to Pickersgill's, implicating Chesney, who had made no bones about his desire to be rid himself of his wife. Still in the face of all this evidence, grinning back at us was the incontrovertible fact that Chesney had not been in London at the time of the murder. And then came the final surprising discovery that should have cleared Chesney once and for all. The newspaper that stared up at me from my desk that morning had a story that ran as follows. Ahem, the body of John Chesney was found on the outskirts of the Bouchard Park in Paris yesterday afternoon. Mr. Chesney, a former resident of London, died of self-inflicted bullet wounds. A note was found with the body. The contents were not released to the press. I checked with headquarters. What did they say? Well, Chesney killed himself all right, and he left a note to that girl, Sonia. But did he say anything about his wife's murder? Oh, he said he'd made a mess of his life, but that he had had nothing to do with Vera's death and wanted Sonia to believe that. A man doesn't lie on his deathbed, even when it's a bed of his own making. What are you going to do? Nothing. I'd like to get off this blasted case. There's no end to it. I still say he did it. What, and lied about it in his last note to the woman he loved? Why not? Why wouldn't he want Sonia to remember him nicely? Now, why do you take it for granted that people tell the truth in suicide notes? I think that's nonsense. But, Mary... I mean it. People aren't quite sane when they kill themselves, are they? Now, why should they tell the truth, then? If I were you, I'd go to Paris and search that hotel with a fine-tooth comb. And that's what I did. Chesney had two passports. One, his legal one, he'd used to go across the channel on the day before the murder, and the other, a forged document made out in the name of Corona, he'd used to come back the next morning in plenty of time to do the job his former fellow convict had refused to do for him. So Mary had been right all along. I wish there was some way I could get rid of her and get a new secretary. It's not good for a man to work all day with a girl that thinks she's smarter than he is. You've been listening to a saga of London, They Bet Their Lives, from the pages of Saga, the magazine of true adventures, presented transcribed by the ABC Radio Network. They Bet Their Lives was adapted by Joel Travers from the story by Henry Jordan and directed by Martin Andrew. That's Saga from August 9th, 1955, They Bet Their Lives. I have no idea what this show is, Lisa. I just found it in uh, our library and just thought, hey, let's play it for our listeners. A little different than You Bet Your Life. It's a l- quite, quite a bit <laughs> a different. different. Hope you enjoyed it. I think that actually came from... The U.K., across the pond, as they say. All right, let's take a quick break. Then it's the Roy Rogers Show, so stick around. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. And now back to Hollywood 360 with Carl Amari. What happened to my microphone? You know, I can't figure it out, Lisa, if you sound better on Memorex or live in person there. Oh, definitely live. You think so? Yeah, here I am. All right. I got the real thing right Yeah. Here. Roy Rogers, good Western series, came to radio in 1944. He was the king of the Cowboys, Lisa. And he shared the microphone with his wife, Dale Evans, and his sidekick, Gabby Hayes. 
They were very popular on radio, and we have an episode for you now, October 5th, 1951, called Crooked Politicians. We got a lot of those, uh, that's for sure. Nothing changes. Here's part one of the Roy Rogers Show. P-O-S-T! P-O-S-T, Post, the serials you like the most, brings you the Roy Rogers Show, starring the king of the cowboys himself, Roy Rogers. It's Roundup Time on the Double R Bar. So saddle your horse, cause we're gonna ride far. The Double R Bar Ranch transcribes stories and songs of the real West with the Whippoorwills. The wisest trail scout of them all, Jonah Wilde, played by Forrest Lewis. The Queen of the West, Dale Evans. And in person, the King of the Cowboys, Roy Rogers. <laughs> Well, howdy, folks. This is Roy Rogers. Believe me, you can count on anything bearing the brand name Post. And I'm proud to recommend Post cereals to you. So get your mom to put them on the shelf and try them as a favor to me. You know, the town of Indian Junction has been taken over by a gang of crooked politicians. And we've heard rumors that real trouble may break out at any time. That's everything, I think. Yeah? Well, let's not get there and then find something missing. The powder, fuse. How about matches? I got plenty. Okay, let's get going. Everything all right, Hill? Yeah. Street's deserted. Okay. I'll light the fuse. There. That's got it. The fuse is lit, Hill. Let's get out of here. We did a real slick job. One newspaper won't be printing nothing more against us. Yeah. And the editor of that newspaper may realize now we meant it when we told him to stop picking on us. Bob Noble? Yeah. I think Bob Noble was in the shop when the blast went off, Warner. If he was, he won't give us no more trouble. <laughs> Paradise Valley rancher visiting Indian Junction sees and hears the explosion. He knows it is no accident. He knows the people of Indian Junction are in trouble. And he heads back across the valley to the Double R Bar Ranch, where he tells Roy Rogers what has happened. We better get our horses, Jonah. Yeah, I tell you, Roy, the whole country's gone outlaw since the government done away with horse cavalry. Can't safe no more. With trigger at full gallop, Roy and his old partner, Jonah Wilde, ride straight for Indian Junction. As they approach Mineral City, they see a rider streaking towards them. Oh, oh. Hold it, Jonah. Oh. Hey, that's Daya, Roy. And she acts like 17 ghosts in the tribe of Apaches was following her. Roy! Roy! I was 
just riding to the ranch to get you. What's the trouble? That explosion at Indian Junction. Two men stopped at the hotel a few minutes ago looking for a doctor. They said the newspaper office had been blown up. Yeah, we heard about it, Dale. But the owner, Bob Noble, well, he was in the shop when the dynamite was set off, and he's hurt. We have convolutions. We're heading over that way now, Dale. You'd better ride with us. If the damage is that bad, we may need all the help we can get. Take it easy, Bob. Uh, I know who did it. I'm sure I know. Well, I, I don't know who set off the explosion and blew up my shop, but I know the organization behind them. Well, give us all the information you have, and we'll go after them. Well, I, I can't prove it, but I'm sure the gang is headed by our mayor and sheriff. I figured as a newspaper publisher, it was my job to wake people up and open their eyes. I printed what evidence I had, hoping folks would see what was happening and get mad. Mad enough to fight. You've been doing this on your own, alone? Well, everybody in town's been scared. I don't blame them, though. They got families. Bob, we're strangers in your town. We might uncover a lot of evidence if we pretend we came here to open up a business sometime. Sure we could, Roy. There are two cons aren't busy pouring gasoline into smelly trucks and roaring airplanes to dicker for horse feed. Well, if we pretend we wanted to open up a gambling hall, for example, we'd find out who the, the bribes have been paid to and where the money goes to from there. Yeah, I lost my shirt gambling with an infantry squad once. See, I lost my shirt. My socks, too. Well, don't count on uncovering too much, Roy. The men who control this town are smart operators. Dale, Bob might be safer if you took him over to your hotel in Mineral City and had him stay there while we're after this gang. Sure thing, Roy. Well, you know, my old commander, General Thomas Kenneth Rowe, lost his buffalo hide overcoat the same way. Only he got sore about it. <laughs> and I appreciate all you're doing, Roy. We want to help, Bob. Come on, Dale and Jonah. From here on, we pretend to be gamblers looking for a place to set up business. Once Bob Noble is safe from further harm, Roy takes Dale and Jonah back to Indian Junction. They go to a real estate office and inquire about renting a large store out near the edge of town. Roy states frankly why he wants a store, to open a gambling house. The real estate agent gives him the name of another man that he must see before trying to go into business, a man named Phil Warner. All right. Thanks for the information. We'll go over and see Phil Warner right away. What do you think, Roy? Is Phil Warner the big shot of this gang? I can't tell yet. Walk towards your horses. Well, Roy, now that we're opening a gambling house... I just wish my old pal, Corporal John Dumphy, was around. <laughs> then we'd make some real money. Yeah, <clears throat> He had a great talent for dealing cards. Well, now, wait a minute, Jonah. Mm -hmm. Open a new deck, shuffle him once, and deal himself five aces. <laughs> he, he made enough that way to get diamonds set in his teeth. You're kidding. Oh, no, I ain't. You want me to write and see if I can get him to come and work for us? Now, wait a minute, Jonah. We're only pretending we want to open up a gambling house. Gambling isn't legal. It's against the law. Mm, now, ain't that a situation? We know that gambling exists here, and so somebody must be taking bribes. We want to find out who. Oh, pretending, huh? Yeah, well, I didn't want no diamond set teeth anyhow. I say I didn't want them, I guess. Are we going to see Phil Warner now, Roy? Yeah, it's just possible that he does head up this gang. We'll know for sure as soon as we see him. You 
say the real estate agent sent you? That's right, Mr. Warner. We talked to him about renting the vacant store on the edge of town, and, well, he said we'd better see you first. Uh, step into the office. Sure. Go ahead, Dale. Thanks, Roy. Well, well, well. Nice office. Soft setting chairs. Sit down. You know, gambling is against the law here, don't you? Well, I, I've heard things could be fixed up if a, if a man knew the right people. Mm, you did, eh? Yeah. Let's talk plain, Warner. If you're the fixer here, what will it cost to operate without interference from the law? You're awful forward for a fellow who's asking a favor. We're not asking favors. This is a business deal. We're paying. All we want to know is how much and how often. Nothing. What's that? Not one cent. You can't pay us one cent because we aren't going to let you operate in our town. Why not? Because I don't like your looks. You don't, eh? No. Now get out. Okay. We tried to throw in with you, but you don't want us. So we'll just have to open up on our own and buck your crowd. You came in here looking for trouble. Now you're going to get it. Stand to one side, Roy. Let an old army man take him. Look out, Jonah. He's all mine. That did it, Roy. Yeah. Well, we're opening up on our own now, Mr. Warner. You'll wish you hadn't. You'll wish it a thousand times. Warner! Well, what are you doing on the floor, Warner? What is all this? It's not what I'm doing on the floor. It's what I'm going to do now. I'm about to kill. You're not killing anybody. Who did this? I did. Why? Alone? Alone. You claim to be the best gunfighter west of the Rockies, Warner. And you let a young buck like this whip you with his fist? I'm not through with him. We're just... A young fella. I think we can use a man with your nerve. Suppose you walk across the street with me to my office. What's over there? Well, as long as you're new here, I'll tell you. I sort of run things in this part of the country. My name's Fred Pratt. Got him. Great. Sure, we'll be happy to talk with you, Mr. Pratt. As a matter of fact, that's why we came to this territory in the first place. To meet the real boss of the town. All right, that's the first portion of an exciting adventure of Roy Rogers going back to October 5th, 1951, Crooked Politicians, starring Roy Rogers along with Dale Evans. Uh, good uh, good program sponsored by Post Serials. It's heard on NBC. We'll get back to it in just a moment. We have about a minute before a break, and uh, I do want to remind everyone that we will take your call or call you back if you call Tonight, over the next few hours, at our 815-900-7535 number to either sign you up for our podcast, which means you'll get the full Hollywood 360 show, plus radio rarities sent to you each and every week. Right, Lisa? We will be happy to sign you up for our podcast. Or if you want to join the Classic Radio Club. Right. And if you have any questions, uh, we are here to answer them. We'd love to talk to you. And... uh Make your day. Yeah. The number, 815-900-7535. Leave a message with your return number, and either Lisa or I will call you back tonight and sign you up for the Classic Radio Club or the podcast. All right. We'll be right back. I'll 
If you enjoy classic radio shows like The Lone Ranger, The Shadow, Jack Benny, Gunsmoke, Dragnet, and Suspense, become a member of the Classic Radio Club. Each month, you'll receive 10 half-hour classic radio shows, along with historical liner notes. The 10 shows will be on five CDs or via digital download, whichever you prefer. You'll also receive an email every week with a digital link to the full five-hour Hollywood 360 radio show and the 30-minute Radio Rarities podcast that Lisa Wolf and I co-host. In total, you'll receive 34 classic radio shows per month. Become a Classic Radio Club member at ClassicRadioClub.com or call 815-900-7535 to speak to a live operator. Log on to ClassicRadioClub.com or call 815-900-7535. That's 815-900-7535. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. Before we get back to the Roy Rogers Show, I want to talk a little bit about a new sponsor of ours, National Review. One of my heroes, Lisa, is a man named William F. Buckley Jr. You might remember him as the host of Firing Line on PBS. He hosted it for more than three decades. Anyway, Buckley got his start as founder of the magazine National Review back in 1955. And even back then... We had problems with sensationalistic, sloppy journalism, and he thought Americans deserved a serious, conservative voice in the public square. National Review was the answer to that problem, and they are continuing that legacy today. We are proud to be partnering with National Review here at Hollywood 360. More than 65 years later, Carl, they are still committed to producing serious journalism from a conservative perspective. So if you're looking for a serious news source grounded in America's founding principles, we have a special offer for Hollywood 360 listeners. Whether you like to read online or prefer a good magazine in your hands, you can start reading today by going to nationalreview.com slash Hollywood. That's nationalreview.com slash Hollywood. And use code Hollywood at checkout for 60% off any subscription. National Review, one of our new sponsors. Proud to have them. And uh, we're listening to the Roy Rogers Show. I love Roy Rogers. He was, as they say, the king of the Cowboys, not only on radio, he was on television. He was... um, a great entrepreneur. I mean, he was a very successful businessman as well. And uh, this op- this episode is from October 5th, 1951. Crooked Politicians. Here's part, here's part two now of the Roy Rogers Show. Roy is pretending he wants to open a gambling house in order to get evidence against men who have taken over the town of Indian Junction. He met Phil Warner, the gang's fixer, but Warner jumped Roy and Roy had to knock him out. A second member of the gang, Roy believes he's the leader, came into the office at that moment and was greatly impressed that one man could lick Phil Warner using only fists. He invited Roy, Dale, and Jonah across the street to his own office. There's plenty of opportunity for a young fellow with nerve in our organization. And you've shown you've got it by the way you handle Warner. Warner doesn't look so tough to us, Mr. Pratt. Why, I fought in seven, eight wars, serving under a sergeant with a jutting chin that he used to sharpen and use for a saber. I say, he used uh, to Pratt, sharpen... Mr. Pratt, uh, you keep talking about your organization. What organization do you mean? You'll find that out after you've been with us for a while. Wouldn't do for you to know too much too soon. 
But you said something about having me work for your outfit. I'll have to know who I'm working for, won't I? Well, let's just say you're working for me. That satisfy you? Sure, but uh, my two partners, I, well, we usually work together. If I join you, that's the way it has to be. Why not? Well, let's get on to business. Here. Here's a list of names. Going to call the roll? Uh, these men operate businesses in the county. Hmm. Our organization collects. Uh, that is, we license these businesses. They're not allowed to operate unless they pay dues to us. I get what you mean. And we've decided to raise the rates. Some of them may not like that. Few might even try to start trouble. But the right kind of a collector won't let them get away with anything less than payment in full. And you think I'm the right kind of a collector? Well, you weren't afraid of Warner. That's good enough for me. Uh, just put the list in your pocket now and go to work. Okay. We'll start making calls this afternoon. All right. Oh, uh, Rogers, before you go, don't be surprised if you notice somebody trailing you. We always watch our men close until we're sure they can be trusted. Roy puts the list Mr. Pratt has given him in his pocket. He doesn't relish pretending to be a member of the gang, but that is one sure way of finding out who the leaders are and what they're doing. Roy, Dale, and Jonah walk out of Pratt's office. They get on their horses and begin riding from one gambling house to another, collecting graft as though they were members of the gang. Represent Mr. Pratt. Is your name J.A. Mitchell? Oh, how much does Mr. Pratt want this month? You're on the list for uh, $250. Two hundred and... Well, I only paid $175 last month. And the month before that, it was only $100. Our orders are to collect or report that you won't pay. And you know how Mr. Pratt hates to be disappointed. Oh, he does that for a fact. Well, I guess there's nothing I can do but kick in. You tell Pratt, though, that if it keeps on like this, I'll go broke, and he won't be able to collect anything. Ah, doggies, Roy. Do you hear what that other fellow said? He said, yeah, I don't know if I got that much money. If I ain't, maybe Mr. Pratt will wait a day or two for part of it. This has been a bad month at my place, you coward. Boy, the mention of Pratt's name sure scares them, doesn't it? Yeah, they ain't living no life of ease, I can tell you that. No, sir, they're not, Jonah. Pratt must have a mighty powerful organization. I reckon we'd better watch ourselves close in dealing with him. You go back and tell Pratt I refuse to pay. I hope you realize what you're saying, Mr. Hill. I'm fed up. This has got to stop somewhere. Pratt and his whole outfit are rotten grafters. Tell him that for me. Tell him in just them words. Roy looks at the man before him. Here is a person who dares defy Fred Pratt and his orders. The first and only man. This man perhaps can be persuaded to give information that Roy, Dale, and Jonah are looking for. Roy remembers Pratt insinuated that the gang might trick them. He wonders if this man is on the level. He decides he has to take a chance. He stretches out his hand in friendship. Here's my hand, Mr. Hill. What? You're our kind of a man. Yes, sir, you are. Wait a minute. I don't get this. Mr. Hill, we're not members of Pratt's organization. Instead, we're trying to find someone like you, a, a man who'll help us get enough evidence to send Pratt and his gang to jail. Mr. You may be lying and trying to get me killed by the gang, but uh, I'll go along with you. 
You come back here tonight, and I'll have records and evidence enough to send Pratt up for life. Well, that's good enough for us. Mm, mister, you're a man of steel. A fellow who can look the world in its eye. After dark. If there's a light on in my place, keep away. That means danger. But if it's dark, walk on in. Roy and his two partners have no way of knowing this crafty man who promised so much is a member of Pratt's gang. Is, in fact, one of the men who dynamited the newspaper office and is now setting a trap. Roy sends Dale back to her hotel in Mineral City to confer with Bob Noble, the newspaper man whose office was dynamited. Mr. Noble, Roy thought it might be better if he didn't come here himself. The gang may be watching us, you know. Uh, they're tricky. They're smart. Well, we found this one man who will help us. And Roy says, if you feel able, he'd like to have you come over to Indian Junction this evening and meet us at the Gold Nugget Cafe about 8. I'll be there if I have to crawl, Dale. Well, I hope when you get there tonight, we'll have a big story for your newspaper. Oh, Mr. Noble, Roy wanted me to tell you not to come into the cafe. Wait outside near our horses in case there's trouble. Dale returns to Indian Junction from Mineral City, and as darkness falls, she joins Roy and Jonah. They wait outside the cafe in the shadows to make sure no one has followed them. The street is deserted. The air is quiet. I don't see any light in the cafe. No. Everything seems to be all right. Yeah, you know, it reminds me of the night I snuck up on an Indian teepee during the battle. I got within range and I fired a rifle ball at it. Only to hear a yell I recognized is coming from Corporal John Dumphy. <laughs> the idiot's triangle head always did look like a teepee. He <laughs> should have kept it hid. What'd you say, Jonah? I said he had Come on, head. come on. You know, a far different head than General Thomas Kenneth Rowe had. Why, we could, we could have shot pool on top of the general's head if he'd have let us. I say, if he'd have let us. Fact is, we often talked about it. You know, but he was too picky. He was, eh? Well, he was, uh, before he met me. See, that was the day he seen smoke signals and interpreted them as the Indians sending a message asking for peace and walked right into their village. What happened? Oh, yeah, why, they wasn't signals at all. The Indians had just put on a pot to boil for their supper, so they cooked General Rowe. Oh, great. Yeah, well, I mean, they would have, but I shot a rifle ball through the pot and drained the water out before the general got well done. <laughs> sure, we were great pals after that, me and General Rowe. You better be quiet now. Let's have a last look around before we go into the cafe. Roy, Dale, and Jonah stand before the door of the cafe. No light shows from inside. Hill has told them the door will be unlocked. Roy puts out a hand, pushes at the door. The door opens. Roy walks inside cautiously. Dale and Jonah follow. No word is spoken. There is a tenseness about them, a feeling that all is not well. Suddenly, from out of the blackness, a voice calls. Stand up, Pat! Get all three of them! Shots ring out, shots from more than one gun. The three partners drop to the floor and lie quiet, knowing they have walked into a trap. They recognize the voice that called to Pratt. It was Tom Hill's voice. At least two, maybe more of the gang are here, waiting in the darkness. They lie quietly for a moment, waiting for the gang to make the next move. We must have got him. I don't hear nothing moving. Yeah, I'm pretty sure we did. I heard him drop. Get out your flashlight. We'll go and see. The two evil men walk slowly towards the front of the gambling den towards the spot where Roy Rogers and his two partners lie on the floor. The men come slowly, cautiously, nearer, nearer, guns in hand. 
Arthur within one step of Roy. He leaps to his feet, shouting. All right, Dale, Joe, let's take him. care of these two. I got their flashlight, Roy. Yeah, a hand-to-hand struggle without the benefit of sabers. Get to your feet, you two hombres. Start moving. The two gang members get off the floor. Their faces are battered, their clothing torn. Hate streams from their faces. Roy has their guns now and directs them toward the door, intending to take them to jail. As they pass a side door, it is flung open. Stand where you are! Stand where you are! Don't move. Drop those guns. We aren't in here to play. Keep your hands up. Walk this way, out the side door. We'll have to do what he says, Dale and Jonah. These people giving you trouble, Mayor? Yeah, Sheriff, they was. Oh, so you're the mayor, are you, Mr. Hill? The mayor and the sheriff are members of the gang that controls Indian Junction. Pratt, I suppose you're the man behind the organization, the real leader. Step outside here. Keep those hands up. They robbed us, Sheriff. Then they tried to kill us. We're sure being framed, Roy. You'll find the money they took in this man's pocket. If you're talking about the license fees we collected, they're not in my pocket. They're in my bedroom. It's tied to my saddle. I'll go get it, Hill. You don't need to. Trigger, come here, fella. Trigger trots over to Roy's side. This is Roy's one chance. The three gang leaders are in control, their guns ready. They watch the horse with admiration as he comes up. Roy shouts an order. Take him, Trigger! Put him down, boy! Trigger's hoofs flash. He rears, strikes at the outlaws. They back away, find themselves against the building. So suddenly has this happened, they find their guns useless. All right, Trigger. Hold it, fella. What happened? I got here as fast as I could. Well, this is a story you've been wanting for a long time for your newspaper, Bob. These three can be booked for attempted murder as well as other charges. And those other charges will include a killing night before last. Sheriff Warner and me had nothing to do with that killing. Can you prove that? Talk to Pratt. The mayor and I were at your place when it happened. We were blowing up your newspaper plant. Now you've told me what I wanted to know, Mr. Sheriff. You're a smart operator, Bob, getting the confession that easy. They're used to bragging, Roy. They never know when to stop. Well, we've learned a lesson. We won't lose control of our town again. These men who betrayed the people that elected them to office are put behind bars. Roy, Deal, and Jonah ride back to the Double R Bar Ranch, where all is peace and quiet. Jonah, what's the matter with you? You look all in. You're not sick, are you? Yeah, well, no. No, but I just sort of had my heart set on getting my old buddy a job, that's all. Corporal John Dumphy. Oh, he's the man who can open a new deck of cards and deal himself five aces. Yeah, 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 that's the feller. Uh, He's out of work now, too. Now, look here, Jonah. Gambling's illegal. Oh, I know it is. See, I know it is. I just, well, well, never mind. I always long to have some diamond-set teeth, that's all. Dale, I think I'm going to have to throw our good old friend Jonah back to the whale. (laughs) Fact Hmm. is, I'd do it right now, except I feel there's more excitement coming up and I may need him again. Sunny honeymoon. We're gonna have a cowboy wedding when the sage is all a bloom. To the mountains we'll be heading for a sunny honeymoon. We're gonna have a cowboy wedding when the sage is all a bloom. To the mountains we'll be heading for a sunny hone
gonna drink in all the sunshine along the banks of Sun Cool Stream. Just laugh and play the live long day, build a cabin of our dreams. We wanna hear guitars a ringing when they play our wedding tune. Down the aisle you'll find us swinging in the early part of June. Within a year, I have no fear, a lullaby I'll prove. We're gonna have a cowboy wedding when the sage is all This is Roy Rogers saying to all of you from all of us, goodbye, good luck, and may the good Lord take a liking to you. See you next week. Happy trails to you until we meet again. Happy trails to you. Keep smiling until then. Crinkle. The newest member of the family of Post Cereals brings you the Roy Rogers Show, transcribed each week at this same time with the Whippoorwills, Forrest Lewis, Dale Evans, and the king of the cowboys himself, Roy Rogers. Produced and directed by Tom Hargis. Script by Ray Wilson and music by Milton Charles. Featured in today's cast were Frank Hemingway, Ed Max, Nestor Piva, and Ralph Moody. This is Art Ballinger speaking for... P-O-S-T! Post Cereals. Happy trails to you Until we meet again Happy trails to you Keep smiling until then Who cares about the clouds if we're together 
sing a song and bring the sunny weather. Happy trails to you till we meet again. All right, that is the Roy Rogers Show. Broadcast from October 5th, 1951, Crooked Politicians. Those crooked politicians, Lisa. Referring to anybody in particular? Oh, don't get me started. <laughs> I won't. Don't get me started. Dessert on NBC, Post Serials. And uh, they talked about a cereal that I don't believe is any uh, longer available. Crinkles? Yeah, it sounds like potato chips. Crinkles? I've never heard Crinkles of Post Serials. I've never heard of Crinkles. Yeah. Um, All right, there you have it, the Roy Rogers Show. And I hope you enjoyed uh, the show we started out playing called Saga. I'm going to try to, I'm going to text Carl Shadow and see what he knows about Saga. Um, Found it in my library. I was like, what is this? I listened to it. I was like, hey, Mike, let's play this for our listeners. All right, it's time for this month in music history. And we're going back to the 1980s with this song. Oh, yeah. That's um, Dire Straits. Money for nothing, yes. sex for free. Yes. Is that your motto? Because <laughs> you just, that rolled right off your tongue. I wish. <laughs> Money for Nothing by Dire Straits was on their album Brothers in Arms. Brothers in Arms. And yeah. it has a guest appearance by Sting singing yeah. background vocals. Really? Yeah. Ouch. You stung me. Funny. Maybe get a blister on your thumb. We got to install microwave ovens, custom kitchen deliveries. You got to move these refrigerators. You got to move these color TVs. And this song peaked at number Uno. I had the CD. Oh, yeah. I had the CD of this. There was like a steel guitar on the cover, and it was like all kinds of colors. It was a really cool CD. All right. Thanks, Lisa. Sure. When we come back, it's more of Hollywood 360. Stick around. More Hollywood 360 after these important messages. Now back to the best in classic radio on Hollywood 360. Well, in our next hour, Groucho Marx is our host for You Bet Your Life from 1950. And we'll also play Beat the Host, right, Lisa? That's right. A little bit different today. We are doing some Valentine's Day trivia. Ah. Fun and easy if you'd like to be a part of this. Uh, You can give us a call at 312-642-5600. We're looking for caller number 14, like February 14th. And is it true or false? It's not. But it's it's, just... Yeah, it's just, it's like fill in the blank. But we're going to play together. It's going to be a group uh, group effort. All right, so we need a caller. You'll win a uh, very fun four-CD set of The Twilight Zone just for playing with us on the air. 312-642-5600. Don't be shy. Give us a call. See you soon. Hi, this is Suzanne Newman, host of the Answers for Elders podcast and radio show. We are the North Star that guides you through the complicated journey of senior care with trusted experts in money, law, living solutions, and more. So join us on this station, your favorite podcast channel, or just go to AnswersForElders.com. Meet the Wayshowers who will help your journey a lot easier. 